everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. This week's guest is the host of the Barline Shift radio show on Homegrown Radio, Amanda Kadrin. As you'll hear Amanda explain, Homegrown Radio is an internet radio station with deep ties to the Railroad Earth family. The Barline Shift features thematic playlists made up by Amanda, and you'll hear anything from jam-centric music that you know already to probably very obscure world music that you might never have heard before. I caught a few episodes of The Barline Shift a couple of weeks ago and immediately wanted to have Amanda on the show. For today's episode, Amanda chose quite a monster. Fish's show on New Year's Eve 1995 at Madison Square Garden, the show. In addition to being an all-timer, it was Amanda's first show, so imagine that. Long considered to be the holy grail of Fish shows, at least in my opinion, I was pretty intimidated to tackle it. It loomed quite large in my imagination. But once I spoke with Amanda ahead of time, I knew that this would be easy, it would be fun, and we just really had a great time geeking out about this fan-favorite show, and we're two of the biggest fans of it. You might also notice toward the second half of today's episode that I kind of went overboard with song clips, Uh, but when you got a show like this, New Year's 95, where virtually every track is a highlight, well... What are you going to do? Every song deserves to be heard. But for the sake of brevity, for the sake of having a reasonably timely podcast episode, Amanda and I just went over our personal highlights of the show rather than all three sets. So let's join Amanda Kadrin to hear about spotting Bruce Springsteen at Toys R Us, chess games, and the Gamehenge Time Laboratory for December 31st, 1995 at Madison Square Garden. Let's meet today's guest. Amanda, welcome to Attendance Bias. Thanks for being here today. Hey, thank you so much. Really excited. Me too. Uh, At the beginning of every episode, I say how excited I am to talk about today's show. And we'll get into this a little later, but you chose New Year's Eve 1995, which is, I think, at least in my lens of Fish, one of the top two shows they've ever played, at least historically speaking, if not personally, that I think it's generally assumed that Big Cypress is the show. And then before Big Cypress was played, New Year's 95 was considered the show of shows. And you have the distinction of not only attending that show, but it was your first show as well, right? That is correct. Go big or go home. That's That's the way I do it, obviously, I guess. (laughs) You are the host of an internet radio show called Homegrown Radio. Is that right? Yes. So the station is Homegrown Radio and my weekly show is called The Barline Shift. So um, I'll tell you a little bit about the station. So the station was founded in 2004, um, late 2004, and from the beginning was completely internet only. So really ahead of its time at that point for what they were doing. Um, It's run and managed by some personal friends, part of the Railroad Earth community out in New Jersey. And I love what they do. I think being connected to a station, whether it's internet or, you know, a physical location is a really nice thing to be able to say you're a part of. It's a community and I'm really happy to be there. Uh, They play everything. So jazz, rock, alternative, classical I come in, of course, with my ever-changing show, which every week is is a little bit different, but all around kind of a, a central point of, you know, jam, improvisational uh, type of music, and kind of goes back to my history of working um, at local public radio stations in the late 90s. 
And for people who might not know, how is internet radio different from, say, a podcast? Sure. Um, well, you know, one of the things that is different about it is that um, I've thought about the podcast world, but I play much more music. So it's much more music centric than interview centric, although I do interviews. They're typically a much smaller portion of the show. And so for that reason, licensing, copyright, etc., um, a radio station is, is allowed to really handle the, the amount of tunes that I want to play. And you said that Homegrown Radio started in 2004. Did you get involved in it on the ground floor? Were you there at the beginning? Not as a, as a DJ or a hostess, just as a supporter. Um, you know, the local community out there, they have really been involved in great fundraisers, community events, um, just a part of, of that world in Northern Jersey. So always was there to, to support in any way possible. But um, the show itself in this incarnation was founded in May 2020, picking up from where I left off in probably, I'm going to say 2002, working at some other stations. So just a brief hiatus for me of, of being on the radio there. And to time travel back a little bit, 2004 probably doesn't seem like too long ago, but I think for some listeners of this podcast, it might be a whole lifetime ago. What was internet radio like in 2004? Where did it fit into the scheme of broadcast and uh, on-demand entertainment? I mean, I think at that point, if I am remembering correctly, we were still on uh, message boards, you know, on Yahoo, communicating through email occasionally, but really still finding our way, I think, around the internet to a large degree. I remember tapetrading.com being a great site. And then all of a sudden you have this radio station on the internet. What is that? And so being able to listen was a really cool thing at that point in time because it was streaming live. Hopefully you had a good connection. Maybe, maybe not. But really it was just a, a fun way, I think, to get music and be able to hear that from anywhere without having to be connected to an actual physical broadcasting, you know, FM radio station. It was kind of the dawn of this on-demand age in which we live, where everything is tailored to you, or you could find anything that you want. And every time you find something you want, there's always an algorithm that says, oh, well, if you like this, you might also like that, X, Y, Z. And so this was kind of the beginning of that, where you could search online. And like you said, if you had a decent connection, listen to music in big blocks that might not otherwise be readily accessible. And also, this is the huge deal. There really weren't any commercials. And if there were, it was for products you actually might be interested in. That's a very fair point. Yes, no, that's true. And this station in particular always had a lot of true audiophiles. They were either tapers, people who were really connected to our scene. And so they were playing some very high quality music, which again, was just really fun to be able to listen to considering at that point, maybe some of us were burning CDs. I was still probably holding on to all of my tapes, but you know, just to be able to hear some things um, like that in that format, it was really fun. And, and they've really just kept that going since then. The name of your show is called The Barline Shift. If someone tuned into Homegrown Radio, and in a moment, I'll ask you where people can find it. But before we learn where to find it, what can we expect if we tune into The Barline Shift? I'll start with just a super quick explanation of the name, which is a jazz term. And I love this because a barline shift, if you were to look it up, it's basically when a musician plays a note just a wee bit before or after they're supposed to. 
and it actually is going to sound awesome. So it's a little bit of an accident, but it's kind of a happy accident and it actually has a name. Um, so they happen all the time, right? But as a as an audience member or a fan, you may or may not notice it depending on where you're at at that point in a show. And so I just thought when I was trying to come up with a name for this version of my show, which used to be called Ice Cream for Your Ears, which <laughs> I know is, is an old school kind of reference there. Um, but I thought bar line shift, how perfect, because this show is what it is. You know, it's going to be real authentic. And when we do make a little oops, then that's just what we were meant to do. So um, with that in mind, it is definitely thematic. And that goes in a lot of different directions. For me, I would rather have a theme and it dictates some of the music rather than me always going to what I know and love. So it was a little bit of a way to force me out of my comfort zone and the bands that I've always listened to and help me find something new and appreciate music from all over the world. And something that your show helped, helped me is what I mean. I've listened to a number of shows uh, after you and I spoke initially and then in preparation for this show. You do an incredible job of what I guess could be generally categorized as world music, of putting together these very diverse playlists, not set lists. And it's it's something that you could relate to. And then all of a sudden we're on you know, like West African music or something like that. My first question to you is, where do you find a lot of this relatively obscure music? Everywhere, anywhere and everywhere. I've been so fortunate through this show to spend a lot of time digging around online, meeting people, of course, virtually, because a lot of this is happening during quarantine times, finding record labels whose entire existence is meant to unearth rarities in different parts of the world. One of the cool things that's come out of that, and I've heard this from a couple different people, is being a part of the jam scene as a fan for so long, we know that a lot of that music comes from different cultures, draws from inspiration across the world. And I had to kind of stop myself a few times and say, hey, this sounds like a cheese song. Wait a second. No, the cheese song probably sounds like this, right? And so making some of those connections has been really fun and just expanding horizon. So I, I appreciate that a lot. Well, it's great because I remember speaking of 2004 or that time of, you know, music expansion and the birth of streaming and that kind of a thing. I remember when Pandora first became popular and it was so incredible that you could type in the name of a band and then through algorithms, it would pick out, you know, what you like, what you might like about this song or this band that you typed in. You might also like this. And so someone who's a fan of the Steve Miller band might also start listening to Steely Dan or Chicago, you know? And the issue that I had with Pandora, even though originally I loved it, it always brought me back to the same place. It was like going into a, um, like a cul-de-sac of musical exploration. What I love about your show is that there's a human being, there's a person with ears and interests behind it. As a DJ, it's not just an algorithm, it's what the algorithm is trying to imitate, but can never quite successfully get there. Yeah, and you know, I think one of the um, one of the kind of hidden gems that that I've, I guess, found or you know was there the whole time that I didn't know about, besides Bandcamp, Discogs, and and some of the more well known um, places to find music. We all have opinions about Spotify. Everyone knows what Spotify is, right? But they really do have some rarities on there that can be a jumping off point to take you off of Spotify and look for something else. And that in itself, I think, has been 
uh, a good starting point to get me going a little bit. I used to build all the playlists there. And then after a while, I realized there's way more than what's here, but it's a really good place. And um, I think last year when I got my stats, which everyone loves to check out their Spotify stats at the end of the year, um, I think it was, you know, well over 1500 different artists listened to in one year, but that's simply because that's what I do all the time is just try to find something that sounds really interesting. If you took your most listened to Spotify tracks or artists and turned it into a show on the bar line shift, who might pop up? Who were you into? Oh, wow. Um, so I actually, I, I did use, speaking of algorithms, the bad Spotify AI. If you haven't checked that out, I actually have it linked from my website. It's a bot, so you got to be okay with that. But what it's going to do is analyze your Spotify, and it's, it's a little cheeky, so it's going to give you some really fun results. So for me, I think I fall squarely into, uh, for my own personal listing, acid jazz, soul, funk, pretty much what I advertise um, but for me, it's bands like the New Master Sounds, the Bamboos out of Australia. There's a, a lot of bands in that genre, Grey Boy All-Stars, some really great stuff. And, and you'd see kind of all around that, that genre is, is kind of where I tend to fall in my own time. And so where can people find Homegrown Radio and when can they listen to the Barline Shift? Yeah, so the show is on every Wednesday from 9 to 11 Eastern. And um, it's most easily accessible, whether it's mobile or from a browser through TuneIn Radio, which is a free app. You don't need to pay for it. Um, And you can get it right online, so you don't need to download anything. Um, So it'll be broadcast there. The station does not keep an archive, but I do on archive.org. And I went with that just simply because that's a place I still go to all the time, um, in addition to re-listen, which links kind of right back to archive anyway. So I post every episode, and if I'm doing a DJ set or other things, um, everything goes there with as much information as I have available about the playlist and sometimes links to articles and other information too. So moving on to yourself and your background as a fish fan, you grew up near the Jersey Shore in Belmar, right? And what were some of your musical favorites growing up before fish even entered the scene? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. You know, I'd say as a young child, um, so this is, you know, early 80s growing up, music was around, but I, I wouldn't say that my parents were necessarily huge music fans in the way that music was played, but it wasn't really something that, you know, I could say was on all the time. However, um, and I think I, I shared this with you earlier, but I'll just go ahead for the sake of transparency, because it is a true story. I forget when um, when the Cosby Show started airing, but if anyone ever watched that as a as a young kid, I mean, for me it was coming on, you know, live so to speak, right? Every week, um, there was some music and and just there was a culture of music in that show, and I remember watching it as a really young kid and being really mesmerized by that. And Stevie Wonder was on the show one time, and I honestly didn't know who that was, but I was just enraptured by what I was hearing. And that really stuck with me. Honestly, I can remember sitting in my house and then asking my mom, who is that? And just not forgetting it. And I didn't really have a way to hear more at that time, but Mm -hmm. it was something that I sought out. Um, You know, this is also 80s Jersey. So Bruce, Bon Jovi, they were just kind of all around like these omniscient, you know, (laughs) gods, but still very accessible people. We would see them out and about, you know, locally. Um, you would see them out and about, like in person? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Bruce more than Bon Jovi, because I think Bon Jovi was really at his peak in some ways. Yeah, like 85, 86. Yeah, yeah. uh, Um, But um, so Bon Jovi wasn't so much around, but I have friends that went to high school with him, you know, very much just uh, like a local guy. Um, But we would see Bruce with his family at the toy store, you know, (laughs) out and about. Um, I just shared this with someone the other day. My mom was a realtor in New Jersey and actually sold the E Street house. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, tons of stuff in the basement. I said, did you not take a guitar pick or something? But yeah. Tons of memorabilia. It was someone's mother's house, but that's where I grew up. So it was really just kind of a culture around some of that, you know. I mean, I'm from Long Island, so we're not too far apart. And growing up, I had a similar uh, like musical baseline as you. Instead of the Cosby show, my parents were playing Don't You Want Me by the Human League in our Pontiac or the Ghostbusters theme was my first 45 by Ray Parker. So it was that very surface level cheese. Uh, But for me, it was Billy Joel instead of Bruce Springsteen, kind of their counterpart, depending on which side of the Hudson river you're on, you know, that's fantastic. Um, Yeah. You know, there's just so much going on at that point in time for these kind of living legends, I guess, in the making, so to speak. And, um, yeah, definitely influenced a lot, I think, of of what I like and the music that I like to listen to. Um, and things just kind of got layered on top of each other. So, you know, the, the early 90s, there was that just huge kind of immersion of hip hop and kind of that coming to the core where it, it was everywhere. You know, I'm living between New York City and Philadelphia. So it was just a part of, of everything, just as I'm really getting into jam bands but it always was just there together for me and so when you say hip-hop do you mean like naughty by nature and even at that time like arrested development like that kind of hip-hop or when you say jam bands you've talked about the early 90s i guess that was the horde tour kind of era like maybe blues traveler and the spin doctors that kind of thing yeah so if you kind of would juxtapose you know let's say beastie boys right yeah with early panic or something. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd see that show. I would pay for that double bill I was for gonna sure. Say, right. I mean, you might say, what, how do those two things fit? But in my mind, they always just mesh together because a lot of that for me, at least was starting to, I was starting to understand it and really get into it right around the same time. So just was always there. How about how old are you? at this point when you first start getting into the Beastie Boys and you're old enough to remember it, not just love it on the surface level, like Stevie Wonder on the Cosby show. Now you're kind of a young adult, I'm guessing. So probably around the age of 12 or 13, I met a very good friend. His name's Joe. He's a drummer, super talented guy. And Joe's dad was a huge music fan. Joe's dad got me into Zappa, all kinds of great stuff right around that age. And so that and then our circle of friends, even at that point, we just had a lot of great influences from either older siblings or friends, parents who introduced us to a lot of great music. And that's what we did. Uh, a lot of my friends were playing in bands at very young ages, local shows, you know, teen night kind of thing. And so even at that point, um, it was just kind of a part of, of everything that I did. So where does Fish come in then? 
Yeah. So back to those older friends, right? Thank goodness for them. It's always the older friends. It's always the siblings <laughs> or the cousins, right? Always, always. It's those those guys who are up to no good, who smell a little funny. <laughs> <laughs> but really, are doing great things. Yes, the unwashed sage. Uh, yeah. Yes, of our of our group. So I was a band kid, um, you know, from well elementary school. But um, there was a, a group of us who had been turned on to fish. For them, it was probably a little bit earlier, like 93 or something. For me, it was more like summer of 94. Um, I believe Fish came and played a local show at the Art Center, um, the Garden State Art Center, which has probably been renamed. Is that Holmdale? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> probably has had 10 different names since then. But that was kind of a turning point because I knew that a lot of people were going to this show. They all had tapes I was listening to and really started immersing myself in that and hearing them talk about it. Um, we had a, a head shop, maybe five or 10 minutes from my house that had a cassette lending library. It was awesome. Oh my God. What was it called? I have no idea what the shop was called. It was in Farmingdale, uh, New Jersey. And it was a lot of dead, a lot of Jerry's side projects, but then they started getting more fish. And just like a library, you would sign out your cassettes, go home, make a copy bring them back. I think it was maybe a couple bucks deposit or something. I don't know. What a great and idea. It was amazing. And I was there constantly. So that's how I fell in love with Jerry Garcia band, Legion of Mary. Again, kind of just this influx of so much music, so many different genres kind of at the same time. So by 95, I was very itching to get to that fish show, whichever one I could. And well, it took me all year, basically, of 95 to make it happen, but but we did it. <laughs> For me, I felt like by the time I did get to that show, I had a, a decent grasp on songs and what I thought I was going to hear, which, of course, ended up being just blown right out of the water expectations-wise. But I went in with a little bit of, of knowledge, and, and really, it was great to hear things that I had listened to before and really made me feel like, okay, I can, I can hang here a little bit. When was this show played? There's no more important venue than Madison Square Garden on New Year's Eve. That is the center of the world for one night. And to date at that time, this was, in my opinion, the apex symbol of Fish's popularity and growth. You know, nothing could say it better than, all right, we're this band that five years ago, was still playing small bars in New England. Now we're selling out Madison Square Garden in the heart of New York City. And after this show, it was almost exclusively an arena or a large venue whenever Fish came to town. What do you remember about 1995 leading up to this show, like the scene around it or anything like that? Well, I mean, I love the way that you describe that. And I, I completely agree You know, with that assessment. It's interesting thinking back because, of course, at that time and place in the age that I was also just thinking about technology at that time, you know, we we knew and followed where Fish was going. I hadn't seen anything like that, of course, up until the show that I went to. But the buzz was just palpable and you could hear more people, you know, at least in our our little scene, our neck of the woods talking about it. And then, of course, looking back now to really understand, you know, that history afterward of where they had almost made this this leap in a sense, like you're saying, right, of of just solidly 
getting themselves in that position to play those kind of venues on a regular basis, sell them out and just continue that energy and that drive. And so going into Madison Square Garden, I knew what a what a great space it was. I'd been there for different events, whether it was music or otherwise. So it wasn't like it was my first time seeing a performance of some kind at MSG or being in Penn Station. That was a totally normal thing for us to do. Um, but walking in at that point and just seeing the lot scene, and I mean, you know, this New York City lot scene is unlike anywhere else. It's amazing and also really intense at the same time. But yeah, well, there's New no York. lot. There's no parking lot. Yeah. Everyone just kind of mills about in yes. front. Um, and at least from what I remember, there was definitely a parking garage scene. I don't know if that would still exist today, but, you know, just seeing all those people that were there for this, this same experience, we, we knew that there was something really special happening. I think when we all walked out of that place, you know, however many hours later, there was definitely this feeling like that, that was unreal. We cannot believe that just happened. It helped for me, at least, that the tapes were so readily available to anyone who wanted them. I wrote this in our notes. I remember that this was the only three-set show that I was able to get all three sets in one trade. When it, when it was the Clifford Ball or the Great Went or any or New Year's 96, I remember I had from the Fleet Center. You know, I had the... Um, I had two out of three sets of that show. I feel like those were all piecemeal. But New Year's 95, it was like one big chunk of tapes. It was easy to find. Plus, the recording is outstanding. Uh, I know. It's it's like um, everything just converged to make it um, accessible to go out into the world, you know? So where were you in 1995 that led you to this show? Who were you with? How did you get tickets? Take mm -hmm. us through it. This group of friends that, you know, that I had, and, and a lot of us are still really close today, um, we, we knew someone that we went to high school with whose father worked for a company that was a sponsor. They had a box assigned to them at MSG, and um, she was always able to help out with tickets and somehow was able to get a lot of us, not tickets in the box, but to just get us access to get in the door with a legitimate ticket. So... I had a ticket in, up in the, the rafters. We all does had she, tickets in different places. Does she still have these connections? And if so, do you have her number? Unfortunately, just, no. <laughs> no to both. Um, yeah, so basically at that point in time, you know, we had our ticket to get in. Um, for those who had been to um, the night before, because I hadn't, of course, and I was a little bit uh, disappointed because the set list was, of course, awesome as well. So I'd missed a couple of songs that I had wanted to hear, but they knew, okay, we have a few people who have floor tickets. We're going to try to meet up, you know, in this section, we'll see you there. And so we all dispersed because we all went to our seats in different places and we didn't have cell phones. And so basically you just had to get yourself down to the floor with no assistance, right? I mean, it almost sounds impossible now to think that we would all make it and how you take it for granted back then you know it was oh, just yeah. this is what we have to do that's right you know where you are we going to meet up we'll be in the back corner and mm -hmm. that's that's the only guidance you have yes so we had a backup plan um and i made it down there just loving from that first note the energy at msg and how easy it was really to get around i 
I don't ever recall, and this could just be my perspective on it, um, the shows that I've been to at MSG, Fish specifically, have really just been very um, open in terms of the folks who work there feeling like they're happy we're there. You know, I don't think fish fans generally cause a ton of problems, but I always got such a great vibe from the folks who were working at MSG. And so it's a little bit hazy because it's been so long, but I found myself right down there um, just as Lizards was starting. So set one was probably me trying to figure out where in the world I was and how to get (laughs) myself down to where I had to be, but no complaints. Set one. All right. So for all the listeners out there, let's just explain up front that this is an extremely long show. Anyone who is watching it on this past New Year's Eve, uh, 2020 to 21 on Live Fish, it is about four hours long or so, maybe a little bit less, uh, full of music. So this would be too long of an episode. So Amanda and I went through all three sets and just kind of picked out our own personal highlights. So we're going to puddle jump quite a bit. So I'd like to start out just by saying every song on this show is a highlight. There's an argument to be made that everything from Punch You in the Eye to Strange Design to the closing Johnny Be Good could, there's an argument, there's something to be discussed about each one, but for the sake of brevity, let's just leave it there so that we can, we can leave with a sense of closure here. So Amanda, the first set opens with Punch You in the Eye, and I listed this as a highlight for sure. What did you think? Now, right, I can look at this and say, what a great opener. Love when they open with Punch, sets a tone, really fun. You know you're going to be in for a good groove to get things going. I think, you know, at that point, and, and I've really tried to put myself back as much as I can to that moment. I will just say that that song definitely was just such a perfect entry point to what was to come. Um, because really, I think that it just built us up to now we know all those hours of incredible music. So then it was a new thing, of course, for me to hear them open with that. But they obviously liked it because they do that so often, you know, over time. And it's, it's always a great opener. It is, especially here. And when I started listening to the show again in preparation of this conversation, all the memories that came flooded back to me weren't obviously about being at the show because I wasn't there, but I was flooded with memories of listening to the show on tape. It was oh. just, it was otherworldly. It was like, I could recognize this crowd roar anywhere. It's distinct from other crowd roars on other shows.
oh, you know, those lights go down and they just they just got at it. They didn't waste any time. And then I skipped next after punch you in the eye over the sloth, which comes next. My next big mountaintop highlight is Reba, which is kind of my formative version in that after I listened to and really got obsessed with this Reba, and this might still be true. I feel that all other Rebas that are played, this is kind of the template and all others are offshoots of this one. That is definitely something that I've heard a lot. It's hard to disagree with just simply because even with some of the, um, I don't know how to say this, some of the bar line shifts in the composed section of Reba that happened, there are a couple little um, little moments there, did not matter um, because the solo, amazing. I mean, they really just took it to some some awesome places. Yeah, the Fish Jam Charts or the Fish.net Jam Charts describes it as quote unquote botched. That's their word. And I would I would agree in some parts. I think that you could not just excuse it, but accept it. Because when you hear the energy, like from the punch you in the eye, this band is so souped up. You could hear it. You could hear it in their music, in the crowd. Everyone is up to 11 with such a complex composed section. It's inevitable that there will be mistakes. Absolutely. And I think all of that just adds so much to the authenticity of, of what they do. I mean, the jam in that song, Train Mike, just going at it back and forth. I think it's just gorgeous. And really, when you think about how the show opened and then goes into that Reba, you're thinking, what could possibly come after this? And that's how I felt the whole night. What else could they do? And they they did it all. This show is just excessive in a good way. It's not too much of a good thing. It's just a lot of a good thing. Yes, I've heard someone refer to it as luxurious, and I would probably have to agree with that. Yeah, it's like bathing in chocolate, this whole show. it's With, with the Reba, though, just you mentioned the jam which is heavenly. Talk about luxurious. It's silk sheets. The way that I, I thought about it when Trey, when the jam first starts, I thought that Trey is, and I'm in education, is a hyperactive kindergartner. He just had to go into quiet time when the jam started and he's still crazy and hyperactive, but he's just quiet about it now. Uh, I wrote, this is perfect fish. Uh, it increases in tempo and intensity, but it still holds together.
have to imagine, and you could tell me the details on this. I have to imagine the feeling in the room is that the inmates have taken over the asylum, that the crowd has grown with fish over the decade, or at least the first half of the decade to this point, And now you're in the center of the universe. I love that total celebration. And somehow through all of that, what you were just describing, and really throughout the show, of course, you know, Mike just lays it down. He keeps it moving. He keeps that groove, even during that jam section and, and throughout. And I just think to some point I, in my mind, I come back to that because that's a little bit of a, you know, okay, this is consistent. This is going to give me a, a little bit of breathing space. And for some of those sections in Reba, I think we actually really needed it. It's so funny that you you gravitate to Mike. I thought several times throughout this whole recording is that Paige was very present in the mix, especially in Reba. Yeah, no, this is a Paige show. And actually, as I was going through, um, I have a note about that because as I was getting to my highlights, I realized there was a theme there of what I was describing and what I really gravitated toward. And I know we'll get to some of these, but... This definitely felt in some ways like a coming out party or, you know, a a celebration of Paige in a lot of ways. And I feel like I don't know, I'd have to really go back and listen to that era. But um, as a band, you know, are they getting to a place where they can really trade off and be comfortable to take different highlights? And and I saw that so much during this show as an awesome trade off at times that felt right. And it felt like they were going with it and just having a good time with it. Yeah, that's a good point. I never thought about it like that because a lot of 1995 fish is excess. You know, there's like 40 minute tweezers and uh, the Halloween with Quadrophenia, which also had horns and destroying the drum set in the end. You know, it's a lot of everything fish ever wanted to do as an arena rock band. And a lot of that is musical. They always seem to be competing with one another, which leads to great stuff. But you're right. A lot of the time in this show, they need to take turns to back off and let each other shine rather than push each other. Absolutely. And that's so that was actually one of my highlights um, for Squirming Coil into Maze. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Tell us what your thoughts are of the Squirming Coil, because I listed that, too. Yeah. So, you know, um, Squirming Coil, I would say, is is not necessarily in my list of absolute must-haves at a show, you know, just being completely honest. But this version, for me, really stood out for a couple of reasons. And here we'll get into some of the, the page highlights, I guess. But his section, which started around five minutes in, I think, um, but especially at the end, was just so beautiful. And it was kind of like this moment of peacefulness or calm in the middle of what was already so intense and hectic to some degree. And you have Trey having a little twang in there at the start of that section, which is wonderful. And he hints a little bit at what's to come, but it felt like he was just there to truly support the piano and the keys. And I just love that. And he kind of just takes that step back. And to me, that was one of the first signs of, of restraint, you know, letting someone else really shine at the right time. Um, Oh gosh, I have a bunch on on this one, but I'll just, I'll see, you know, if you have anything to add and and then I've got a a couple (laughs) more things I can share about that one too. I was just going to say that it was, you're right in that the first, what is this? The fifth song in or so, maybe the fourth, uh, punch you in the eye, the saw three, but in the squirming coil. Yeah. It felt like those first three songs, almost like we're inside a volcano and the squirming coil, the part that you mentioned where Paige starts his solo, which is extended, I think it's longer than most squirming coils of this era. The piano part is a cool down. 
for sure. But it's very artistic. It's very eloquent. And it's very, very beautiful. To me, it feels like or felt like a, a counterpoint to that ridiculous maze, right, that followed. And it's kind of this juxtaposition of songs is one of the reasons why I chose that as one of my highlights. And of course, you know, we're listening to it now. We know what's coming up. But at the time, we had no idea. And we were just enjoying that moment and that mesmerizing solo that you mentioned, which I think could be at home. I think I the way I wrote it is on any stage in so many different genres, which is another reason why we all love fish because, you know, the music does transfer, but then all of a sudden, you know, here comes fish and then we're off and maze is just a banger. It's just, you know, so fantastic. Um, I've heard throughout time that some people feel maze was not in good position in that set, that it just felt out of place. I respectfully disagree. I know everyone has their own opinion on this, but I think one of the best things about this show and fish in general is they can go from something like that gorgeous jam out of coil into a maze and may not make sense, but it does make sense at the same time. This maze gives me anxiety. This essence of fish jamming in 1995 and a few years before is tension and release. To me, this is all tension. I find myself with my fingernails digging into my palms listening to this maze. It's so good, but it just, it, it makes me feel it in my chest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I, I had gone back and really tried to mark some time in that particular song because there's just some really great moments, I think, in it. You know, you've got, of course, just like the classic guitar wail in there. You know, they're building up to it and they have a, such a solid groove around um, minute six or so. But by eight minutes in, it's just like, boom, we're going to end this thing with more energy. And then there we are back to the start. Let's chill out for another second. And the maze after it's over leads into what I listed as my last highlight with an asterisk, right? The asterisk is that every song in this show is a highlight, but it's this suite of Colonel Forbin's Into Shine, Into Famous Mockingbird. I wrote this in capitals. Is this when it's sunk in that fish was playing Madison square garden in new year's Eve? Like what a silly, weird, musically complicated, but proficient song to play right in the middle of an opening set. That's about a made up fairy tale. Absolutely. And at that point in time, I was still relatively new to the man who stepped into yesterday and that history. I, I loved what I knew, but I certainly did not have it all down. I mean, like you said, there's just so much. And throughout that show, 
some of the audience cues definitely didn't nail those at all. <laughs> but just seeing the reaction and that that interplay, even in a venue of that size, and how people were just so connected to what was going on, that three pack there of, of songs to end that first set to me were a wonderful example of, of how Fish manages to make that connection with fans. Um, I, I just think it's amazing. And, you know, the narration and the monologue there was, was just very special. Any talking, of course, even back then I knew this is a really cool thing. We want more of this. Always. Um, you know, always. Yes. More, the better. Um, and then shine. Like what, Loved what it. is this? <laughs> Loved it. Humor, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, the first thing that I noticed, and I didn't realize this the first time I heard this, because that was many, many years ago. But what, this is the first time during Colonel Forbin's during the narration that Trey references that it's the end of the year. And he's, you know, he says it's weird that it's weird how time keeps sliding by and you, you don't have to think about it, but it keeps happening over and over again. I think the key of this and really for me personally, the key of my love of fish, aside from the music itself, is when Trey says, I might as well tell you the reality of the situation. And it's a joke, of course, but it's this, it's almost like you're being let in on a secret that you know something that the, someone outside MSG doesn't know. Right. And that's what makes it special. The years just keep sliding by, don't they? It definitely feels that way. And I think um, hearing Shine, uh, you know, a song like that, really kind of a popular song, just put in the mix the way that it was, was just a, a view into what was to come with this band of the really surprising but awesome covers that they would do, you know, throughout the years. And you just never know what to expect. You know, whatever it is, is going to be fantastic. But to do something like that in a place like that on New Year's just shows we're having such a good time. You know, we respect our music, but the fact that that they don't take themselves so seriously, it to me is is one of the best qualities that that they possess and still to this day. And they pulled it off. Tom Marshall they sounded did. pretty good on Shine. You know, and I, I barely knew who he was at that point in time, let's be honest here. But here's this mammoth guy coming up. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, because at that point, you know, I was I was probably about 20 rows back. And so I could see and I'm thinking, well, I don't really know who that is, but he's not doing a bad job with this. <laughs> so that was it for me for set one. Did you have anything you wanted to add about Sparkle or Chalk Dust? You know what? I think we covered a lot. To your point, we could probably sit here for, um, you know, camp out for the next couple of days <laughs> yeah, on, on this show. You bring the s'mores, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I, I think we're good on set one. Set two. 
And Setu opens with Drowned, which is just two months to the date removed from Halloween 95, only the second time it's been played. And whenever Fish plays The Who, it's a win in my book. The Who were my, my band before Fish. And whenever when I found out that they played Quadrophenia and that they consistently played Drowned, I'm like, all right, well, I guess this is the greatest band ever. So let's just go here. And the fact that they played it to open the middle set of their most high profile show to date blew me away. And that's to say nothing of the momentum of en- and energy of it right off the bat. Agree. Agree. I think, you know, that was a really kind of infectious jam in there. That's another area where I think Paige really came through. Um, and the vocals, again, were were very well done. I went back and listened to that so many times. I thought thought that was really, a you know, a good showing uh, on the the singing there. When was the last time that you listened to Roger Daltrey sing Drowned or The Who? Have you heard it? It's so hard. Roger Daltrey's performance is so impressive vocally. The, like Quadrophenia as an album is tremendous to sing. And so to for Fish to be that vulnerable, to put themselves in that position that, you know, they, they could sing like you and I said earlier, they can each carry a tune, but they're not lead vocalists, you know, oh. in, in the classic rock sense. That's true. And I know we're not there quite yet, but I felt the same way and still do about Sea and Sand, where really there's nowhere to hide from yeah. the vocals in these songs. And, and they did several covers like that. And so, you know, kudos to them for, for going for it. And in addition to the vocals, there's a lot of loud and soft dynamics that begin around six minutes in or so. Paige, like you said, is just playing great rock and roll riffs over the top. And it it just it's like a snake or a dragon really just tearing things apart. This rocks so hard. feel like for an arena show this is pretty close to an arena rock song especially for them and i think i think they did it their own way and it was awesome next up i wrote down runaway jim which was uh after axilla and i thought this was a really good change of pace it's uh, one of the fishiest of fish songs whatever that means to you it means that to me and in the middle of it i think what trey says is runaway dobbs D-A-U-B-S. And that's a reference to Mark Daubert, right? The the percussionist who was at Fish's first show as childhood friends. And I thought it just reinforced the idea of Fish owning this venue and the momentous 
vibe of this show that Tom Marshall came out and set one. It's Runaway Dobbs, you know, referencing his childhood friends, that this is almost like a big homecoming that the band themselves couldn't believe that they're the ones on stage for New Year's that night. It's oh, like yeah. when you're, it's like when you're in high school and, you know, you're a freshman, you're a sophomore, and then you realize eventually, oh, we're the seniors now. Yeah, you know, I, I have to say, and if I remember correctly, that gym had a couple teases as well, in addition to some of the lyric changes. I think they went, did a little shine tease in there again, if I remember oh. correctly, um, and then a few others. But, you know, just so rhythm heavy, that song is what the name is, right? It makes you feel like you are on this little journey and having the best time possible. And the end of it, I, I re-listened to it again today. The end of it is really what sticks with me. I think that on my re-listen, that this was the highlight of the show for me so far, musically speaking. I love all the banter. And like you were talking about before, that we always want more and more of it. I love that stuff. And I'll go to the mat for it. But as far as jams go, this kind of a techno beat centered rhythm that you were mentioning toward the end of runaway Jim, I could just live in that world forever. I mean, I think it was, what, 16 minutes or so long? Yes. Um, I've heard it lovingly referred to as a runaway jam. And honestly, I mean, that's what it was. Time just stops when you're in that kind of moment. We've all felt that. And you have no idea how long it's been since this all started here. But, you know, it, you just wanted to keep going, like you said, because it's that good. I mean, I, I can honestly say that nothing was ever the same after that night. I think what I saw and what I felt is these are incredibly talented people who can enjoy what they're doing. Between that, of course, you know, the infamous chess tournament, it it really helped me feel like this is a group of people, both on stage but in the crowd too, that I want to be around, that I feel comfortable with. You know, we're all searching for that kind of thing, especially when we're in our early teens, right? We want to kind of have that feeling of belonging. So the music is what got me there. But honestly, it was it was a full 360 experience, I think, of just being completely welcomed, feeling very, very protected in there, feeling safe. And then you throw on top of that just this energy knowing that this is not scripted, right? This is something that they're doing tonight, one time only. The next time they do this, it's not going to be the same. And and you just want as much of that as possible. After Runaway Jim, they play Strange Design, 
perfect. And hello, my baby. My next big highlight that I put was the set closing Mike song. Oh yeah, me too. <laughs> Mike's Hydra Weekapog is is an ultimate at a show, especially nowadays. If I hear that coming, I'm going to just be extremely excited about it. But anytime I hear that first set of notes in Mike's, it's just I'm ready to go. And the way that this one unfolded, also being my first time hearing it live, I feel like it just set the bar really high for any other time I would hear that. It takes, you know, just maybe two and a half, three minutes to really get into that deep, deep groove. minutes they just they keep it going it's it's unbelievable yeah it's incredibly long it's incredibly long i think it's 17 minutes the track including what on fish.net is listed as the digital delay loop jam but just for all intents and purposes it's mike's song as as one song listing but the band holds on to a riff for a few minutes and then it just remains straight improvisation for like five or six minutes organically growing and moving, but it doesn't find a conclusion, and it never does, actually, because they end the whole set on this feedback loop. That was when my absolute love of New Year's and all the New Year's shows I've been to since, pretty much every year since then, grew out of that that moment of just anticipation. And thank you for that pulsing, unfinished ending we're waiting for. If it doesn't happen, it's cool because whatever you're going to do next is going to be <laughs> completely awesome, I think, is is how I felt. So there's a long set uh, set break before they come back on for set three with the the visualization of the gag of the Gamehenge Time Factory. So what did it look like to you and what were you thinking, if you remember? I think in my mind, it just was icing on the cake for what had already been an indescribable experience of all senses, pretty much, right? I mean, just everything happening around you. And I thought, you know, being someone who who loves to laugh, but also, you know, really enjoys, I think, um, participating in, in activities that get me thinking, it just amazed me that chess would be the thing in a show like this. And not only that, everybody's so into it, right? I mean, we all, even those of us who hadn't maybe been quite as connected to the prior games, you know, what was happening leading up to this, no one was questioning what was happening. And I just find that so remarkable because there's no cool factor, right? That's anyone's trying to meet. It is what it is. It's fantastic. Who could beat a New Year's baby like that? I don't know. I've never seen anything <laughs> better. So I'll, I guess I would just leave it there. <laughs> 
And for the third set, I did not put too many highlights. And that doesn't mean that it's not a good set at all. I guess it just didn't match uh, the enormity of the first two, which I think is is what tends to happen on New Year's shows. But it does open with Auld Lang Syne, of course, with the New Year's ball drop. And then the first song of 1996 is We Groove. And it obviously brought closure to the Mike song. That was the, you know, the practical intent of it. But it really kicks into overdrive. What a party this must have been. Oh, yeah. And I think maybe a familiar theme, but I really enjoyed how much Paige got to shine in this as well. Like there's a lot of, of him there. Um, and then that transition, you know, sea and sand, I know we're not quite there yet, but I just thought was was really beautifully done. I would not have expected a song like that on New Year's in a third set, just simply because it's it's New Year's Eve, right? It's party time. And then they just brought it to this gorgeous place. Um, so all in all, the song selection to me, I always found really fascinating but it's almost like, did they know that we needed something like this, right? Before we get into that, you enjoy myself. I think so. I, you know, I think that the band as a whole and Trey, especially since he tends to be the one who, uh, who drives the set list or makes most of the calls. I think they've become experts at the flow of a show of charting the energy levels of a show from peaks to valleys and everywhere in between. And we could groove I mean, you could hear it through the recording that around five minutes or really 550, around six minutes, that the energy just goes into overdrive. And then you're right. It's an indelible, indelible transition into sea and sand, which is a perfect highlight for me, because, again, anytime Fish plays the Who, it's the perfect show. I will not get too meta, but it just felt really good. And I think it just perfectly led into, you know, what what I think still is is one of my favorite You Enjoy Myself versions um, ever. It almost felt required that the show wouldn't be complete without it. And even though there were two songs left after You Enjoy Myself, they played Sanity and Frankenstein for the third set. You know, there's the encore, of course, of Johnny Be Good played at about 90 million miles per hour. But You Enjoy Myself, it almost felt like we, we have to plant our flag 
you know, this is not a full momentous fish show unless we play you enjoy myself here. Yes. And I mean, I do have to say um, there was a you enjoy myself played a couple weeks before this show um, that, of course, I went back and, you know, heard afterward. I don't know if it was Albany. It might have been. They they were really doing an excellent job, of course, you know, with these big monster jam ballads at that point. But there was just kind of a haunting section of this one and just some really incredible improv work happening that to me is what kind of sets it just a little bit apart from others. What what was the feeling walking out? I know you mentioned earlier that you felt like it was momentous. Nothing would be the same after this night. Were you that self-aware at the show or did it take a while for it to sink in on the way home? The way home is a whole other show. <laughs> a whole other podcast episode. It would have to be, yeah, it would have to be a dedicated time for that. Anyone from that you know part of the country who was trying to get home to New Jersey after New Year's 95 knows that it took some of us nine hours, but I'll leave it there. Wow. Um, but there was definitely this feeling that not only have I never heard anything like this, not sure if I would hear something like that again, but I really want to try. And so I'm going to go to as many of these experiences as I possibly can. I think you just summed up the whole fish fan ethos in a sentence. You know, you hear something you love and that means the world to you and you might never, ever hear it again. You probably won't because by definition, it's different night to night, but you're always chasing it. You're chasing that feeling. It's not that different from a drug, you know, in a positive sense. In this case, you know, it's like it it can't go wrong. Yeah, it, it can't. And, you know, I definitely have had shows that I've been to that, you know, were good shows, but maybe did not have as much remarkable or spectacular moments. Those are still experiences like we all know that are so special, um, especially these days. There's been a lot of memory hopping, I think, um, to, to, you know, just go back in time and re-listen and, and find those gems, things that I didn't hear the first, second or 10th time that I was listening to something. So Amanda Kadrin, thank you so much for coming on to talk about one of Fish's prime shows, New Year's Eve, 1995 at Madison Square Garden. Again, you are the host of the Barline Shift on Homegrown Radio. Before we check out today, can you remind everybody where they could find Homegrown Radio and when they can listen to the Barline Shift? Yes. Um, and I just want to thank you. Um, trying to tackle a show like this is definitely you know, quite a big undertaking. So thank you for letting me do that. Um, and I really appreciated it. So um, the Barline Shift is on Wednesdays, 9 to 11 Eastern, and that's available most readily from TuneIn Radio. And that's it for today's episode and my interview with Amanda Kadrin about New Year's Eve 95. After we were done speaking and I re-listened back to this episode, I was actually pretty proud of us, even though this is a pretty high-profile show and it happened quite a number of decades ago. There weren't really any fact checks to speak of. I don't think we got anything wrong. Of course, there will be people out there to correct us. However, there is certainly some fun trivia to double up for today's attendance bias fact check. Attendance bias fact check. When discussing her earliest musical influences, Amanda cited Stevie Wonder's guest appearance on The Cosby Show. She doesn't remember when the show aired. For the record, The Cosby Show itself premiered in 1984, and the episode with Stevie Wonder, which is titled A Touch of Wonder, aired on February 20th, 1986. Stevie appeared when Denise and Theo got into a car accident with him, and they rear-ended him, and he had to get out. 
intro to Stevie Wonder. There's a clip of the episode in today's show notes. When talking about how she first got into fish, Amanda mentions a show from the summer of 1994 at the Garden State Arts Center. Most of us know it simply as Holmdel. The show that she is talking about was played on July 2nd, 1994. It contained a ridiculous Mike's groove in the second set. It opened with 2001, the second set did, and then it delved right into Mike's simple, back into Mike's Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, into Hydrogen, and into Weekapog. Even more than that, the Weekapog included teases of Antelope and 2001, and the second set also closed with Highway to Hell, so that one might be worth checking out. In that same conversation, when talking about growing up in New Jersey and getting into fish, Amanda brought up a head shop in Farmingdale, New Jersey, that had what I think is the greatest idea ever, a tape lending library, but she couldn't remember the name of it. So after some thorough, exhausting research, which consisted of me posting a couple questions on Facebook, I found out that the name of the head shop was Tish's Place, T-I-S-C-H apostrophe S, Tish's Place, and lots of fish fans in Facebook groups have really fond memories of it. Thanks, Internet. When explaining how long the show is and why we filled our discussion down to just the highlights, I said that New Year's Eve 95 is about four hours long, maybe a bit less. I was just a tad off. According to Fish.in, Fission, where the recording resides, the music is exactly three hours and 28 minutes. And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. I'd like to thank Amanda Kadron for joining me today, Fish.net for everything they do, Fish.in for the recording used in today's episode, and Homegrown Radio for putting myself in touch with Amanda. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show. Leave a rating and a review of the podcast on your favorite app. And also reach out to me. Find Attendance Bias on social media. I'd be happy to interact and to send you a free sticker. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias. Attendance Bias.